0: Welcome to this webinar series, Physical Activity Researcher podcast and International Society for Physical Activity and Health, ISPA, have started a collaboration. We have edited their webinars to audio-only podcast versions, so you can listen to them also on the go. Our mission is to advance science and share scientific knowledge, so if your organization as relevant webinars or lectures, and would like to get more audience to them, please let us know. But without further ado, let's jump to the webinar.
1: Thanks very much, Anne-Marie. Um, so as, as Anne-Marie mentioned, the title of this session is uh, Research in Low and Middle income Countries, Easier Said Than Done. Um, before I introduce the format of the session, I think I going to introduce the uh, panel members. Uh, We've got a fantastic panel this morning, uh, in no particular order. Uh, We have Fiona Bull, who is Programme Manager, uh, the Department of Preventive uh, NCDs at the WHO, um, as you all know, leading global work on physical activity. Um, Welcome, Fiona, uh, we have Karen Milton, who is Associate Professor for Public Health at University of East Anglia. Welcome, Karen. Um, we have Jasper Shipran, who you've already heard from, Professor of Active Living at the University of Southern Denmark. Um, we also have Bang Pam from Papua New Guinea, Institute of Medical Research, uh, working in population health and dem- demography. Uh, we have Pedro Halal who is a professor in physical activity, epidemiology, uh, University of Platus in Brazil. And I apologise, Pedro, because this is pretty early for you in the morning. So sorry sorry for getting you up uh, so early. And uh, last but not least, uh, we have Manas Stamtakis, who is a professor in physical activity and lifestyle uh, and population health from University of Sydney. Um, so the, the format of this morning... Um, I'm I'm going to start with a few warm up questions to the panel, um, but I would really like the audience to then start posting their own questions that I can address to the panel. Um, So if you could uh, do that in the usual fashion, um, send them to me if possible, but otherwise send them to Anne-Marie and then we can really start start to get you involved. Um, So I'm not sure if Pedro has joined us yet. Don't see him anywhere. Um, But I'm going to kick off with a fairly sort of uh, a a bit of a warm up. And we have spoken about this already a little bit, but um, there's clearly a lack of evidence um, on physical activity from cohort studies in uh, low and middle income countries. Um, So the the question is, why do we fundamentally need to collect those data? Um, And I think I'm going to direct that to Karen, actually. If you could um, kickstart us off with that, Karen.
2: Okay, no pressure. I think the well, the, guide, the guidelines are global, and we know that people in different countries face different barriers to being physically active. There's different um, contexts in which we are physically active. In some cultures, we get a lot of physical activity through occupation, and we know that that has different different associations with with health outcomes. And so, by only capturing data from high-income countries, we don't fully understand participation levels in other parts of the world and associations between those activity levels, whether it's occupation, whether it's leisure, whether it's transport, and various health outcomes. So I think if we want guidelines to be truly representative of the world's population, they need to be informed by research which is conducted in all parts of the world, and currently that's lacking. So that would be my short answer.
1: Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Karen. And just, uh, Fiona, could I just bring you in from a WHO perspective? um, How do you see the WHA kind of potentially contributing to this sort of movement to try to collect these data in, in low and middle income countries?
3: And not a small question there, Mark, but good morning to everyone. Or good evening to you. uh, And good afternoon to those. Um, Mark, that's a tricky question. Um, I was going to answer your previous question. And if you'd allow me, I'll make a comment on, on the previous question. I think Karen presented a very good scientific case for it. Let me present the policy and the political data drive policy. And so we need good data to make the policy changes. That's how WHO helps, because we call for the data, we look at the data, we're a credible agency in reviewing the data, and our voice counts, and can convince and convey that data and science to, to the politicians, the policy makers, which ultimately are deciding whether physical activity is important in a country to bother having a national policy uh, to fund sport, recreation, build cycleways and parks and other things. So a cohort study sounds very removed from that, but it's the building block fundamentally. And if you don't have good data and you don't have data that um, has consensus, If there's scientific debate, scientific questions, the policymakers have moved on. They'll wait until that problem is solved. So we have to, as scientists and the community, ensure we have good data, develop consensus, and that data has to have relevance and applicability. So the gap of the low and middle income countries, the gap of disadvantaged communities, the gap on people living with disability are huge gaps. So um, I think the meeting, which I apologize, I haven't been able to join um, and look forward to hearing uh, the outcomes of it, is fundamental. And uh, if I may say, I think the 2020 guidelines published in, uh, in November, and I'm sure all of the audience are aware of those accessible on the website, Um, I think provided the platform and I hope it can continue to provide the platform. Um, I hope everyone is uh, using those publications to argue for the work you're doing within your universities and academic and research institutes, but also um, it for this collaboration. So I hope that's provided some food for thought, Mark.
1: Thanks. Thanks for it. Yeah. Excellent. And I think, uh, Tony, you had your hand up. Do you want to comment on, uh, anything that Karen or Fiona have said or, or
4: on the initial question? Thanks, Mark. I just wanted to add that, uh, particularly for the children under five, if we look at the evidence upon which the WHO guidelines were based, more than 90% of the evidence was from high income countries for each of the behaviours and then the combination of those. Now, that's problematic because less than 10% of the world's children aged under five live in high income countries. So you've got this mismatch of where the evidence is coming from driving uh, the global guidelines here. And there's no ability for low and middle income countries up to you know several years ago to be able to speak into that. So that's why I think more studies which do uh, have samples from lower-middle-income countries are so important because we can't just assume that that evidence upon which we're basing guidelines is applicable from a global perspective.
1: Yeah, uh, thank, thanks, Tony. I think that's a really important uh, point. Y- Jasper, you you um, obviously sort of touched on the the, the, the issue when you spoke uh, at the beginning of the morning I just wondered if you wanted to expand a little bit um, from the society's perspective on the importance of going into low and middle income countries in terms of the data collection.
5: Yes, I could do that. Thank you, Mark. So um, I I think, as we also heard in in, uh, in earlier presentations today, that we all want to go there. Um, And some projects, Sunrise is a great example, are starting to do that. There are, of course, other good examples as well. But I think one of the the things we hopefully can can discuss or uh, and develop together is how do we make this happen? What is necessary? What are the barriers? Is it is it the lack of devices? Is it that devices are seen as witchcraft? Uh, is it how how do we actually make this happen? on the ground in low and middle income countries. Uh, do we need to train the researchers? Do we need to provide the devices? What, what, what do we need to do? And, and we've heard some good examples, some good experiences, also some bad experiences, I think. Um, but I think for me, that is the, the important part where hopefully ISPA can play a role in, in by providing training sessions, by organizing events uh, regionally, locally, um, hopefully together with ProPass, with the Sunrise Study and other uh, great projects that are already ongoing, have these experiences, so that we can provide the, the right tools, whether that is devices, whether that is training, whether that is something entirely different. Uh, I'm not quite sure.
6: Um, Manos, could I bring you in with your, with your hand Thank you. raised? Thank you. I would like to expand a bit on uh, Jasper raised a really, really important point. About the support that uh, us, uh, the privileged ones, privileged researchers, and privileged uh, workers in high income countries. And uh, I don't think I need to elaborate why uh, we are privileged. Uh, I think here we should, what we should have in mind, and certainly this is what ProPass has in mind with this partnership. Here we are talking about long term support systems. We're not talking about uh, running a couple of workshops, uh, a couple of uh, training uh, sessions and uh, lending some uh, devices to uh, a group in a lower or middle income country to run a study. Uh, I think what we should have in mind, and especially if we manage to, gain the interest, to earn their interest of WHO or equivalent organizations, is that uh, we should be thinking about setting up long-term cohorts, providing mechanisms for supporting uh, uh, lower-income country research groups to be uh, to keep going for uh, five, uh, 10, 15 years. I know it's easier said than done. Uh, even finding resources to set up cohorts, it's a big issue, but uh, it's clear to me that our mindset should be long-term mindset, and that's there's a very very an important common uh, here uh, denominator with surveillance as well. You don't set up surveillance for uh, on the on a two or three-year horizon. You don't set up surveillance as a one-off study. You set up surveillance and cohort studies for a very long-term uh, horizon.
1: Uh, th- thank you, Maros. Yeah, some some good points. Um, but before I move on, we're starting to get some really good questions from the audience, but uh, before we start on those questions, I want to just ask one final question, um, which is directed to, to Bang. Um, obviously, Bang has some uh, very direct experience uh, on the on the ground of collecting data um, in his uh, uh, studies. And Bang, I just wondered, wondered if you could highlight the, the really, as what, how you see it as the really crucial challenges um, in, in this area. Um, you, again, you briefly touched on your presentation, but I wonder if you could uh, just underline what you see as the real uh, key challenges.
0: Hi, this is only interrupting a bit. Just wanted to let you know that there was technical problems with the sound quality. So we have clipped out about two minutes of the presentation here as the audio quality was was not good enough and we wanted to preserve your ears. So there will be a little jump in the presentation here.
1: Uh, that, thank you thank you bang. yeah that's really insightful and certainly some uh, some 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 key challenges there. I am I'm, I'm gonna start now just just addressing some of the audience questions to to the panel, Um, we've got a couple of of good ones come in and and I would just encourage you to uh, continue to uh, keep posting your uh, questions in the chat. Um, The first question, um, it's about whether we need to consider uh, differences in data collection protocols that may differ depending on whether data collected is conducted as part of a cohort study or with the aim of actual surveillance so um i'm not sure who that will be best directed to um possibly, possibly i don't know uh, tony you've got a bit of experience in the field on that one um tricky question uh manos or, or fiona you,
6: <laughs> would either, either you like to tackle that one I think, Tony, Tony, Tony if he, if he's happy to answer it first, to have a go, I can have a go second. Tony, please.
4: I think certainly for, for surveillance, we need to have the same methods across all the countries. Uh, and in our experience, given what we've just said before about some of the challenges that we see in, in lower middle income countries, I think the importance here is that we as researchers in high income countries work very closely with a local team who know the context, who know the people, who know the populations, who know the challenges there. And we have a fairly extensive pilot phase that allows you to iron out a lot of those challenges. and some of those challenges are ones that I highlighted in my um, in, in my presentation, and it's often just working through something that's new to, to these people. So with accelerometry, if that hasn't been used before, obviously there's going to be questions raised about the devices such as we saw. So again, that's the, the, the place for the local research team to be able to work through those, and they're in the best position to be able to do that. So. I think it just reinforces the importance of partnerships when we're doing this so that if we are going to have a study where we are comparing across countries and we're we're doing the same protocol and that those countries have the opportunity to be in those discussions right from the very beginning. So if it's clear that something that you want to do isn't going to work in those countries, you have the opportunity to modify it.
6: Can I go next? Manus, Manus do you want um, to? Yeah. Do you wanna yeah. Uh, uh, I, t- Tony, Tony's response actually uh, uh, made me slightly change my comment uh, because uh, Tony raised the issue of global surveillance. So I think we have evidence from high-income countries always that surveillance and cohort research can be combined. And we have bright examples in Haynes in the US, the health survey for England and the UK, They have used uh, uh, devices, accelerometers, uh, about 10, 15 years ago. Uh, These are classical surveillance studies designed to be surveillance studies that are used for cohort research. So in theory, I would be in favor for combining the two. In practice, I think it would be extremely difficult to combine the two, especially in the context of global surveillance for the reasons that Tony mentioned, that you have to be consistent across countries. Uh, So I think it could be as a first step. If if the end goal here is to boost uh, cohort research, health effects research, boost the lower and middle income countries' evidence base, uh, it would be perhaps more realistic to be targeted and to set up this long-term cohorts, uh, long-term support, offer the long-term support to select groups around the world in these countries and uh, try to collect uh, data for health effects research. If a large organization with a lot of money uh, comes into play and they are willing to dedicate resources and support a global surveillance effort uh, using devices, uh, which will be uh, also used for cohort research, I think that would be uh, the best case scenario. But uh, I can't see this being around the corner just yet. Thank you. Thanks, Manas. Um, Fiona, did you want to come
1: in? And then I've got Bang. You've got your hang up as well.
3: Uh, Look, very quickly, uh, very good points made. Um, And I I think it's a challenging discussion to have about whether the approach, as Manos said, of combining uh, is feasible uh, and affordable. Um, I I, I heard in the question the issue, of course, of the relationship between doing the research through cohorts um, and the consistency of measures and then the needs around surveillance. And my main point would be that they do need to develop in tandem because the evidence derived from studies which measures the behavior in a certain way will drive the guidelines that countries adopt and the specifications that science communicates is needed on how much, what type, where, and whatever, which the surveillance systems must be aligned with. So you do need to be able to have that sort of continuity. So let's take a contrasting situation. Fabulous cohort study using a really expensive, quite complicated, difficult instrument that gets brilliant results. We can't replicate it in surveillance. The counterpoint, and of course, there was some very encouraging presentation I'd just heard before, is a device that is feasible, affordable, usable, and provides the evidence and is plausible for the same in the the surveillance systems. Um, I want to correct or at least clarify that when we say global, it's usually an aggregation of data that's conducted in countries. So, agree, absolutely, the need for the ability for countries at different times of the year, over time, of course, long term to collect the data, which is usually then aggregated. I think Manos, you're visioning something which um, is, is, is very visionary in an enormous study being conducted, um, which is collectively global sample, etc. But I feel it's probably likely to be building blocks of data coming through, but already signals from this group and um the intent behind uh, PROPASS to have coordinated, harmonized approach. That's the only way we've got efficiencies. And I've got a point to make later, uh, Mark, I hope we'll have time for, about how urgent this agenda is. Thank you. Uh,
1: thank you, Fiona. Um, a Bang, Can I, your, your hand was up. Is, it, is that a... Would you like to come in?
0: Hi, this is only interrupting a bit. Just wanted to let you know that there was technical problems with the sound quality. So we have clipped out about two minutes of the presentation here, as the audio quality was was not good enough and we wanted to preserve your ears. So there will be little jump in the presentation here.
1: Yeah, thank you very much, Bang. Um, Just want to move us on to Well, this is not really moving on. It's it's a kind of follow-on question from uh, the audience. Um, This is, again, sticking with the protocol theme. Um, The question is, what are the perils of assuming a standardised device and protocol is applicable worldwide to measure physical activity when we know there are uh, known individual and contextual factors would LMICs benefit more from customization rather than standardization to inform policy? So that's an interesting question. Um, who who would like to tackle that one?
2: <laughs> I'm happy to have a go.
1: Thank you, Karen.
2: <laughs> okay, I th- I think when it comes to um amalgamating the data to inform guidelines or to inform policy it's important that we're able to to do that in a good way and the more diverse the evidence is the harder it is to reach conclusions about you know the truth if you like and so I think that there is a lot of strength to be had in standardization I think there may have to be adaptations in terms of protocol and exactly what things look like on the ground but I think the more consistent we can be in terms of the devices we use the wear time requirements the cut points we use I mean we've even learned this from uh, self-report data we had the IPAC because we needed a standardized tool across countries so that we can compare data and amalgamate data and look at the look at the global population so I think that there's definitely a lot to be said for standardisation, although I think we do need to recognise local contexts and the challenges that, that come with those contexts.
1: Thanks, Karen. Um, I think Jasper, I think you were next and then Manos after that.
5: Yes, uh, thank you. So I, I think this is a very interesting point. And, and while I can, of course, not disagree with standardisation, I also think that we have to be careful and keep the big picture in mind. So. If we look at it on a worldwide level, looking at, OK, we want better evidence, then is there really on that scale a difference between a wrist worn accelerometer and a thigh worn accelerometer? And I know this is a dangerous thing to say in, in this company, but um, I, I, I think we do have to look at that to see, OK, well, can we... Um, can we agree on the lowest common denominator across devices, for example? Um, is it possible that if people buy a commercial um, um, wearable device that and they self-record their daily steps? I mean, we know that there are a lot of there's a lot of inaccuracy in that those devices, but wouldn't it be a lot better? a lot of other things. So um, I I think, on the one hand, standardization is good and and devices and all that is also good, but I think there could be a very good middle ground there where we can get a lot better data um, with more simple tools as well.
1: Thanks, Jasper. Manos, do you want to jump in next?
6: Yeah, I would would like to flag, uh, it's a quite obvious point, that Here we are talking about doing research in countries with limited resources, limited, sometimes limited technical infrastructure. Uh, Bank outlined many important problems. If we are talking about methods that involve smartphones, phone coverage is limited in some uh, uh, such countries. I think if the goal is absolute uh, uniformity and standardization, we would be shooting ourselves in the foot because we will be adding yet another obstacle to all these challenges that we have to face by default. Uh, I would think, the other other point I would like to make is is like that objective measurements, device-based measurements, provided that the placement is consistent, are not very sensitive to changes in the protocols, in in the measurement protocols. So if you have, a study that collects, uses a seven day protocol and then another study that uses a four day protocol. I don't think, I think that's a kind of a footnote. It's not a big deal there. Um, So I think, yes, and I I, I tend to agree with uh, Jasper. Perhaps I'm not very comfortable as uh, Jasper might have guessed. I'm not very comfortable with uh, kind of not standardized in the placement, but we should uh, also, in the absence, if there are reasons to select uh, a placement of of a device of an accelerometer that is not consistent across countries, it's better than having no evidence at all at the end of the day. And then at the data processing and data analysis level, we can deal with it. Thank you.
1: Thanks Manos. Um, Anthony, last, last, last word on this point. Did you have your hand up there?
4: I would just support what Manos said, that in our experience, using device-based measurements, we can do a standardised protocol. It has been shown to be feasible in most countries with an actigraph around the the waist. Uh, Parent questionnaires are much more problematic and they are much more sensitive to contextual factors, particularly if you're asking parents about time their children spend in physical activity. You have uh, so much variability around children who go to preschool, children who don't. Um, and and whether parents actually know what the children do when they're at preschool, so those challenges I think uh, are much more problematic from parent-based questionnaires. Th- thank you, uh, thank
1: you for, for all the uh, comments there. Um, so what we're going to do is finish with one final question from the audience, and then I want to uh, finally finish with Fiona on her the point that she wanted to make. But this 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 one is a is quite a, a nice one to get stuck into, and it's it's a policy uh, related question. This one is: should we move away from global towards region specific or nation specific uh, data that directly informs policy? Um, for example, the sort of example that's given is low middle income countries increasingly face. Uh, road traffic accidents as a barrier to travel show. So should, should we really be targeting uh, sort of policies at, at a more sort of regional as opposed to global um, effort? Uh, who who would like to go first on that one?
3: I'd be happy to uh, to make a contribution to start off <laughs> yes, with. Thank you, Mark.
1: Yeah, brilliant.
3: Um, I detect a, a little drift in the conversation towards the policy and a conflation of su- surveillance and the cohort study. And I want to bring us back to the essence of what I understood is the, uh, the partnership between, um, between ProPASS and the academic community by, by way of the um, uh, ISPA, ISPA uh, society. Fundamentally, the call from the guideline work of WHO was for more and better and stronger evidence on the health benefits and it, the guidelines of 2020 was, were only physical activity and sedentary. There's clearly a need to move towards tackling the three behaviours in their, and their joint effects. Um, that research needs to happen in more places, in more diverse communities. So we can just move away from saying global and just say we need, as as I think the at the outset of the session and the conference, has been on the low and middle income, because we've got more research, although not even enough, when you put the three behaviours together and then you say all oh, the population groups we need, older adults, people with disabilities, um, a, a, and um. And the three behaviors, even in high income, there's 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 more work needed. So I would uh, encourage the the conversation and the debate and conversation that follows this to focus on what is already an enormous need, and that is to build capacity. As uh, Jasper, you you quite rightly said, what are the barriers to making this happen? And the barriers are capacity, our technology our funding and our political will in some ways either to, to create those other three um, uh, activities to happen. So, um, uh, of course, when you do, and to take the questioner's uh, point, um, of course, decision making at a local a country level and a regional level will look closest at the data that comes from their own country and region. And so we do need to um, provide that, which by definition is why we're looking at doing more diverse studies in those countries or countries in more diverse studies, rather, uh, diverse countries, rather. Um, but the um, when we get to we know it's good for health and now we've shown it in those diverse context, populations and, and, and settings, The policies absolutely vary. And the the questioner pointed to the differences and priorities of whether it's transport-related physical activity, walking, cycling, barriers, safety, or indeed access to sport, public open space, and the workplace, that the practical end of the interventions to change levels of physical activity, of course, is very close to our agenda at WHO. And it's a continuum. But I think what I was really excited about hearing from this group and this agenda is the need to tackle the science needs to develop. Because I'll jump to my point, Mark, if we want new guidelines in 2030, we're already running out of time. And thanks to Manos inviting me, I've done a work plan that says in the next biennium funding, WHO has to be asking for money to do the scoping study. And the scoping study will be the foundational of saying there is enough evidence to do new guidelines. Now, if there's not enough evidence, and that's uh, 2027, by the way. If there ain't enough evidence out there, then the answer will be come back in five years. Now, if there is enough evidence, then we start the process that many around this call know, a process of developing guidelines that would then deliver in 2030. It was frighteningly short timeline, Manos, <laughs> that I then outlined. And I was a little bit more generous than the last round <laughs> where we were all under an extraordinary uh, COVID impacted timeline. So. Um, let's focus on the question at hand which is developing and transitioning to device-based measures device-based guidelines three behavior guidelines that's big enough and it will need everyone's effort building on work of sunrise into those other populations and you've got to have your book published by mid-28 or it won't get included in the systematic review probably august manos
1: thanks very enough i think that's a kind of a Fantastic way to finish this session, but um, I'm going, Manos. I'm going to give you the final word.
6: Yeah, uh, what I want to say, uh, uh, hearing while hearing Fiona, I wanted to give her a hug. That's all. Uh, <laughs> I'd like to give her a hug uh, because that was music to my ears, and uh, I really hope that uh, this uh, uh, panel discussion will, will be the starting point. We have been uh, uh, successful in engaging as a professor consortium, engaging with the society, which was a massive step. And uh, if we have WHO, if we attract WHO's interest as well, uh, we will be set for success. I mean it and uh, I'm totally confident. You won't hear me uh, being certain uh, uh, or make predictions very often, but I'm very, very confident about this. So thank you, Fiona. A virtual hug, I I, I hug you virtually, okay?
1: And on th- thanks, Manos. And on that note, I'm I'm gonna uh, we've run out of time. Um, so I would just like to say massive thank you to our panel members. Um, uh, massive thank you to the audience for your participation.
0: Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Research through podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners
4: like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in this show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever app you're using. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, So be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a
0: great day.